This is Benbo from benbo.substack.com. Benbo's newsletter where I write about basketball and creativity and writing. And today we have a treat for you, an interview with David Friedman, who has two fantastic sports-related sites. Uh, and David is a sports writer. The first site is 22ndtimeout.blogspot.com. That's the numbers 22ndtimeout.blogspot.com. And the other site is bestoversportstalk.blogspot.com. Bestoversportstalk.blogspot.com. And I'll link to both of those in the show notes. David is, without a doubt, a historian of the game and has some deep insights into the game that I discovered when I was working on an article about Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And I was doing a deep dive into Michael Jordan's defense, and I found some quotes that sort of hinted at the coaches and players and teammates felt that Pippen, Scottie Pippen, was actually the better defender. And then I, doing, doing a deep dive on that, I found David's site where he'd written up some great stuff on Scottie Pippen and uh, Scottie Pippen's hero when he was growing up, who's Dr. J. Um, so I'll link to all that in the show notes, but let's go ahead and get started. David, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate you having me as a guest. Okay, let's start with, before we get to basketball, what are some of your favorite podcasts? What do you listen to? I don't actually have a lot of podcasts that I listen to. And the one, one that I really like, I'm not sure that it's active anymore, but House Call with Dr. J, as, as I'm sure we'll get into, Julius Irving, Dr. J is my favorite player of all time. And, and he had a podcast for a while. He interviewed Isaiah Thomas, the original Isaiah Thomas, not the current one that plays now, but the, the Hall of Famer from the 1980s. He interviewed George Mumford, mm -hmm. who is a specialist in mindfulness, who worked with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. But actually, Dr. J knew him growing up or knew him in his college years. He had some other fascinating people that he interviewed. Uh, so that podcast, if people can find it, if it's still out there, I don't think there's any new content, but the old content is definitely worth listening to. And particularly the two episodes I mentioned, but all of the episodes were good. He actually interviewed one of his childhood friends who gave him the nickname Dr. J. So that one, if you're interested in Dr. J's life and background, that one would also be of particular interest as well. But I don't have a huge number of other podcasts that I really listen to or recommend. I'm kind of more of a consumer of the written word. I guess I'm more old school in that sense. Mm. George Mumford is an interesting person. I first heard about him with, with one of Phil Jackson's books where he wrote about using uh, Mr. Mumford as a consultant for the team. Have you ever interviewed him or talked to him? I have not. I, I've never interviewed him What's he or like? met him. Uh, I, have, I have one of his books. And like I said, I, I listened to the interview that he did with Julius Irving, and you're correct. He was an influence for Phil Jackson's teams. He was a mentor, both specifically with Jordan and then also later on uh, with Kobe Bryant. And a lot of um, the mental aspect of the game, how, how do you maintain your level as a dominant player? How do you work with your teammates? Mm -hmm. And the conversation he had with Irving was actually fascinating, where he talked about some of the similarities and differences in personality and leadership style among Irving and Jordan and, and Bryant. And I think Irving a lot of times, now he's my favorite player, but I would also say Irving is an underrated player. He's a player, it, you know, sometimes I think kind of gets forgotten or lost in the mix for a lot of reasons. One, I mean, he retired a number of years ago. So people under 40 don't remember him, didn't see him play. He played in 
predominantly the pre-ESPN era. And then, of course, the first five years of his career were in the ABA, where, you know, there's very little coverage of that, even at the time it existed. And now it's almost like ancient history for people. And I always say, if you take the first five years of anybody's career and just knock off those statistics and achievements, what would you be looking at? But that's what people do with Irving, and it's not fair. You take off the first five years. That was a professional league with Hall of Fame players. You take that out, you're taking out a lot of his MVPs, his championships. Just look at Jordan. Look at Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. If you take out the first five years of those guys' careers, and particularly Bird and Magic, you're taking out a lot of championships. And with Bird, you're taking out some MVPs. Jordan won his championships later, but... You can't just say we're evaluating players' greatness and then look at Irving as, well, we're just taking the last 11 years of his career. So um, kind of all over the map a little bit with that answer. But, um, but Mumford right. is, a, is a fascinating 100%. person to listen to and to read his writings. And he interacted with some of the greatest basketball players of all time. And he has some good insights about them. So speaking of sports writing, what are some of your favorite basketball books? That's a great question, and I have I have a huge library, so when I knew we were going to be talking about that, it's hard to limit it to just a few. But I picked out five, five books that I, I would recommend. A couple of them I think a lot of people have heard of. Some of them people may not have heard about before, but and, and in no particular order. Uh, one is a classic that I think a lot of people will have heard of, which is called The Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam. And I think a lot of people would argue that this is perhaps the greatest book ever written about basketball. For those who don't know, to just briefly explain, Halberstam's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer who's written about a large number of subjects. Unfortunately, he passed away in a car accident several years ago. But he wrote about, he wrote well about many, many different subjects. But in the breaks of the game, he followed the Portland Trailblazers team for an entire season. This was the season after they won the championship with Bill Walton. Maurice Lucas, and several other very good players. And so it was a diary not just of that team, but using that team and the aftermath of the championship as a prism for the entire league. If you want to understand the history of pro basketball up to that point and what was going on in the league during that season and the immediate preceding seasons, there, there's probably no better book to read than that. It's, it's a tremendous book. It's aged well. Uh, the writing is fantastic. The research is fantastic. The interviews are fantastic. Uh, I read it when it came out. I mean, I was a child when it came out. I read it when it came out. I've reread it. It's a great, great book. Now, the next book might be a book that nobody on this podcast has heard of, although you've probably heard of the author. The author is Charlie Rosen, who often collaborated with Phil Jackson. So I have a feeling most basketball fans have probably at least heard of Charlie Rosen. You may have never heard of a book that he wrote in the 1970s called God man and basketball jones it's in essence almost like a love letter to basketball it kind of hops all over the place um, he does some player evaluation um, some history of the game um, but his, his writing style is very engaging i'm sure anyone that's ever read his writing it's very engaging he has a tremendous passion for basketball if you love basketball and you read charlie rose and you can tell that he loves basketball and it's a book that i really enjoyed now, the one caveat that I would always say with, with Charlie Rosen, or well, two caveats, I don't necessarily agree with every single thing he ever said, but that's okay. You don't have to agree with everyone to appreciate their writing or appreciate their analysis. And in other books, not necessarily the one that I cited, some of his other books 
you have to be a little careful. Sometimes he will have some of his facts wrong. And I don't know why that is or how that happened, if that's the editing or whatever. Mm. So sometimes with Charlie Rosen, you have to be a little careful or kind of do your own research on some of the facts. But when he's actually analyzing players or talking about their skill sets or talking about strategy, he has tremendous insight. And so there's always value with him with that. Uh, and so that was the second book that I listed. And again, these books aren't in any particular order, but just I picked five. Uh, another one, and this is one that probably no one on the podcast has heard of, but it's called The Legend of Dr. J by Marty Bell. Now, for most of Julius Irving's life, there was no authorized biography of him and actually not that many biographies, period. He recently, a few years ago, did an authorized autobiography with Carl Taro Greenfeld, and that's an excellent book as well. But The Legend of Dr. J, for many years, that was the only real biography that you could read. Now, it didn't cover his entire life because it was written in the 1970s, and then there was like an updated version that came out, I'm going to say maybe in 1981. But it's a tremendous insight, if you want tremendous insight into kind of Julius Irving's upbringing, how he developed as a player, the ABA years. It, it really is tr a tremendous book, in my opinion. Marty Bell was someone who wrote for Sport Magazine in the 1970s back when sport was probably the premier magazine, probably even superior to Sports Illustrated, although a lot of people may not realize that. Sport was edited by Dick Schapp for a while, just had some tremendous, tremendous writers. Marty Bell's not necessarily the most famous, but I enjoyed that book. Uh, another book that's a great book that I think probably most of your audience may have never heard of the book or heard of the author is a book called Stuff Good Players Should Know. It's by a writer named Dick DeVenzio. He was an academic All-American at Duke in the early 1970s. Then he went on and played professional ball, I think, in South America and some other places like that. But this is a book that is a great tutorial, a great education in terms of how to actually improve your skill set as a player, how to develop as a player, maximize your capabilities. He was five foot ten, but again, like I said, he played, you know, Division One ball, played some professional ball, did some coaching. And his book just really has some tremendous insight into drills you can do, things you can do to develop your skill set. So it's a book that I read and enjoyed. And he also has some commentary in there about different players and how they played. And, and one of the things that struck me, and I always remember, you know, being a Julius Irving fan, being a pro basketball fan, he talked about mm -hmm. Julius Irving rarely missed a dunk in games. And he said the reason for that is he didn't attempt dunks he couldn't do or, or dunks that he couldn't complete mm -hmm. in a particular situation. And that's a very important thing to understand that, you know, if you can't complete the dunk, you do a finger roll, you do something else. There, there's no great advantage to doing a 360 if you're not capable of doing a 360 or if you're in a situation where that's a low percentage play. The, the ultimate goal is to make the highest percentage shot that's possible. And it was a great insight that he provided for any player in any situation. You attempt the shot that's a high percentage shot based on your skill set, based on the situation that you're in. That's just one insight from his book. And then the fifth book that I chose uh, to discuss today is one called Wait Till Next Year. Now, this is not exclusively a basketball book, but it has a lot of basketball content. It came out in the late 1980s. The two authors are William Goldman, who's a world-renowned screenwriter, and also Mike Lupica, who some of your readers may know or, or uh, viewers may be familiar with from ESPN Sports Reporters, a longtime uh, newspaper writer as well. And wait till next year, the premise of that book, it was a, a full season, a full year of New York sports at that time. So New York Jets, New York Giants, New York Knicks, the Mets. 
And the way the book is put together, it's a fan's notes and a sports writer's notes. So William Goldman would write a chapter about a particular te or team or something that happened from his perspective as a fan. And he's a very articulate, very well-informed fan. And then Mike Lupica, mm -hmm. who was covering those teams, wrote about his perspective of actually covering those teams, interviewing Daryl Strawberry, Lawrence Taylor, you know, Bernard King, all these different players that he met or interacted with or covered in some fashion. So it, it's a great time capsule for that era. It was an era that was a very interesting era in sports, but also a lot of insight. And then specifically for basketball fans, some of the content in that book about Wilt Chamberlain, Larry Bird, Bernard King, other great players, just fascinating, interesting material. So those are, those are the five books that I selected. But um, there, there's a rich basketball literature. People a lot of times talk about the literature for baseball or the literature for boxing. And, and that's true. But there's also a rich basketball literature as well that, that probably deserves more attention and acclaim than it gets sometimes. That's, that's fantastic. Those are great recommendations. I've only read two of them. Uh, I'm a big Charlie Rosen fan, so I'll definitely try to track down God, Man, Basketball, Jones. And uh, the breaks of the game, as you said, is sort of usually held up as the pinnacle of basketball writing, and it's a fantastic book. For my money, there's a book that's equally as good, if not, for me, just a little bit better, that... I haven't come across anyone else that has read this book or heard of it. Um, so I'm curious if, if you have. Have you ever read or heard of The Golden Boys by Cameron Stout? I have. And I'm trying to – that book came out a while ago, so I'm trying to remember the exact content that was in it. But I actually noticed it is – I'm looking here. I think in that the bookshelf? I'm looking to see if I have it in my library. But you'd have to refresh my memory of the content because it would have been a while ago since I had read that one. Yeah, he basically embedded with the Dream Team, the 1992 Dream Team, the original Dream Team. And he has a chapter just dedicated to each of the players and then a couple chapters about training in Monte Carlo and then the the um, the is it the Tournament of the Americas and then the Olympics. Um, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Richard, I think it's Richard Ben Kramer wrote a fantastic um, book about the 1988 um, presidential primaries. And it's just a genius of political reporting. Um, he did so much work and so much background. And this book, The Golden Boys, kind of reminds me of that book, where it's just clear that the reporter has done so much background on each of the players, has interviewed so many people, and then just places you right there, places you in Christian Leitner's head or Charles Barkley's head or Michael Jordan's head. Um, it's just really an outstanding book. And for some reason, it's one of those lost treasures. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, I'll actually, I'll have to check that out. I was, I was looking to double check on myself. The book that I have by Cameron Stout is actually the franchise. He did something mm -hmm. that sounds like it's similar to what you're talking about with the Dream Team. But the franchise is about the Detroit Pistons and the Bad Boy Pistons. And that, that's an excellent book as well. The Golden Boys book that you're mentioning, I'm actually thinking, I may not have actually read that. When you said Cameron Stout, I knew the name was familiar. I was kind of going through the mental mm -hmm. Rolodex of trying to remember, okay, who is he? What did he write? And the book of his that I was thinking of is not the book that you mentioned, but the book he wrote about the Detroit Pistons, uh, which is also an excellent book as well. So the book that you mentioned, I, to be honest, I don't think that I've read it. 
Yeah, the franchise was his first. I think I think he only wrote two basketball books. It was the franchise, and then the Golden Boys, and then he later got into um, writing about science and medicine, I believe. But with the franchise, he obviously became friends with and got a good in with Chuck Daly. So then, when Chuck Daly was selected as coach of the Dream Team, that was sort of his in. Um, for the dream team. Some of the stuff he writes about early on in terms of the selection process, it's clear that it had to be somebody who was quote unquote in the room. And that person was most likely um, Coach Daly. Uh, Speaking of sports writers, let's, uh, because I I just, I, I think good sports writing is great writing. Who are some of your favorite sports writers? Okay. Now for that question, I actually, I have 10 names that I'll just mention briefly. And there's wow. other people nice. that I could mention, but I want, and some of them are, are famous names that probably everyone will have heard of. Some of them are people maybe that people have not heard of, but without any further ado, and this isn't in any particular order, just um, some names that I jotted down that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned. One, David Halberstam, who we've already talked about, talked about his book, The Breaks of the Game, but he also wrote a tremendous mm-hmm. biography of, of Michael Jordan. And just anything by David Halberstam is a great read, not just for basketball, but just in general. Uh, another writer I deeply respect, unfortunately, he's also passed away, is Ralph Wiley. And he might be best known for his writing about boxing, which was extraordinary. But anything, he wrote some some articles for, ES, uh, I think, ESPN.com or ESPN2, whatever they called it at that time, Page 2, I think, um, about Tracy McGrady and about Kobe Bryant. And, and again, anything you find by Ralph Wiley is just tremendous. And and actually, he wrote a, a Sports Illustrated cover story about Eric Davis, probably my favorite baseball player of all time. And that's a tremendous article. If you can go in the Sports Illustrated archives and find that, the article that he wrote about Eric Davis. And he later wrote a book with Eric Davis as well. Sam Smith, who might be most famous for the book The Jordan Rules. But also, I believe he's still active nowadays. I think he's doing some, some blogging or writing on the Internet. I'm not sure exactly which websites he's affiliated with at the moment. But, of course, a longtime writer for the Chicago Tribune, uh, tremendous writer, uh, has some great insight, had inside access, obviously, to the Bulls in their early glory years. I mentioned Charlie Rosen previously. I, I mentioned the book specifically, God, Man, and Basketball Jones. But he's written a lot of books about basketball. I'm always interested to read what he writes. Like I mentioned before, I don't always agree with him. Sometimes there will be some factual errors here or there in his writing. And it is important to mention that. I mean, factual accuracy is important, but his analytical skills, when he gets down to the, actually the point of analyzing players and analyzing teams and what works and what doesn't and why, it's, he is always worth reading. His perspective is always worth considering. Uh, Roland Lazenby, on full disclosure, I've worked with Roland Lazenby. He, he was my editor, has been my editor for Lindy's Pro Basketball. I've written team previews uh, for that magazine for a number of years. But Roland is a tremendous writer, tremendous editor also, but he's written perhaps the definitive biography of Kobe Bryant, Showboat. He's written perhaps the definitive biography of Jerry West. He's written perhaps the definitive biography of Michael Jordan, although there's some other great Michael Jordan biographies as well. So Roland Lazenby has to be mentioned. I'm going to mention a name that that many um, listeners may not have heard of, and I'm not even sure where he's writing today, if he's still um, in, in the profession or not, but his name is Kevin Ding. And when I was familiar with his work, he was writing for the Orange County Register, and he was someone who was covering the Lakers during Kobe Bryant's career. And of all the people that really kind of had inside access and were writing about Kobe, he had as much insight and as much 
fairness and balance is just about anyone that I've read. There were a lot of times people during that era, you were kind of either a Kobe guy or you were a Shaq guy. But I thought Kevin Ding was, was just a, an honest appraisal guy. And I, but I always felt a lot of times Kobe got mm. some unfair raps. And I thought he did a very good job of unpacking things that happened and really just explaining what had taken place in different games and in different situations. So his, his writing is, is, is excellent as well. I mentioned Marty Bell. I don't know that he's written a whole lot about basketball other than the legend of Dr. J. But if I would mention uh, my favorite basketball writers, I would definitely mention him. I, I very much enjoyed that book. I mentioned Dick DeVenzio. I think he's written some other things besides stuff good players should know. Um, that's the book that I'm primarily familiar with. And, and that book alone is a reason for, for me to mention him. Uh, Tom Callahan. Now, he's an, uh, another one kind of like Ralph Wiley in terms of being an all-arounder and, and probably not even primarily known for basketball. But at one time, he was a columnist for Time magazine, and he wrote some, some great articles about Dr. J, uh, Dr. J versus Larry Bird in the early 1980s. And, and he wrote with a lot of insight, and those articles stuck with me. I remember the article he wrote, I think it would have been in early 1987 in Dr. J's final season. And, and just Tom Callahan is a great writer. And it writes about a lot of different subjects. So he's someone that I would recommend. And then the last one, and this would be a, another name from the past, a name, unfortunately, of someone who passed away quite some time ago, but Pete Axtell. And he was mm. a sports columnist mm -hmm. for Newsweek. He also appeared on some NFL pregame shows, covered a lot of different sports. Basketball was not his primary sport, but his basketball writing uh, was exceptional. Um, he wrote an article about Dr. J in 1976 when Dr. J was still in the ABA and talked about that arguably Dr. J might be the greatest player of all time. And he was explaining why um, he wrote about Dr. J later in Dr. J's career when Dr. J was with the 76ers and Exum was with Newsweek at that time and, and just a tremendous writer. And then I have to mention, of course, the city game, the classic mm -hmm. book that Pete Axtell wrote about New York City basketball. Uh, both the playground game and the New York Knicks and everything in between. Just a classic, classic um, book by Pete Axtell. So um, I think that was all of them, 10 writers that I listed. I mean, I could list others. I, I love the subject of writing. I agree with you that great sports writing is just great writing, period. But um, for someone who doesn't know or is trying to build a library or starting out, those are 10 good authors uh, to Google or go to Amazon or eBay, find their books, find their old articles. Uh, they're well worth reading. I love it. And in the show notes, I'll include a list of all of those authors for people that want to start improving their basketball library and tracking down books or authors they may not have yet read. Okay, let's, let's shift gears for a second here. And as I mentioned at the top, I first got in touch with you concerning Scottie Pippen. And I think we're both on the same page that we feel Scottie Pippen is, even though he's considered one of the 50 greatest players of all time, first ballot Hall of Famer, he's also underrated. So could you talk a little bit about Scottie Pippen and what people may not realize in terms of the greatness of Scottie Pippen? Yeah, I, I think he's a tremendously underrated player, and it, it's always disappointing to me when I will read articles and people are talking about, you know, redoing the top 50 list or updating it and, and questioning, you know, his presence on the list. 
I mean, Scottie Pippen's a top 30 player of all time, possibly maybe even top 25 player. I, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we would have to go quite some point in time into the future before we would ever get to a point where we'd even be considering that, like, that he could possibly not be on the list. So what could I say about Scottie Pippen? First thing to understand about him, he was bigger than Michael Jordan. He's a legit 6'7", six, 6'8", six, long wingspan. You could make a legitimate argument that other than shooting or scoring, which obviously is an important aspect of the game, but in terms of rebounding, defense, playmaking, ball handling, you could make a legitimate argument that he was equal to or superior to Jordan in all of those areas. Now, obviously, it's a big caveat mm -hmm. because scoring is important, and, and Jordan was a better, more consistent scorer than Scotty could score from more areas of the court more consistently. But I think a lot of times people do not realize or appreciate the skill set that Scotty Pippen had and the role that he had on those teams when they became championship teams. He was the primary ball handler. He was the one that was organizing and running the triangle. And, and it is no exaggeration to say he was a genius at that. He understood the triangle as well as anyone. And he understood mm -hmm. how to, to activate the triangle. So, well, why is that important? Why does that matter? Jordan, Jordan actually scored more points before the triangle, scored more points before Scottie Pippen. So why should we care about that or why does that matter? The reason that matters is when Jordan was playing for Doug Collins and before the triangle, you know, he had to do a lot of those things. He had to run the offense. He had that season where he had all those triple doubles in a row where he was playing point guard. But the problem is you're not going to win a championship that way when you're wearing out your best player, having him have all those responsibilities at once. When Scottie Pippen came to the forefront, he was the one bringing the ball up the court and running the offense. So what that meant for Jordan was if he wasn't the one who got the rebound or was bringing the ball up the court, he could run down court get early deep post position or get early position in whatever sequence they were going to be running. And Pippen is going to deliver the ball on time and on target. Pippen's going to organize the offense, make sure the spacing is correct, make sure that when Jordan gets the ball, it's almost impossible to double team them effectively because everybody is where they are supposed to be. And so those, those are critically important contributions that Scottie Pippen made. And I don't think that those are understood or appreciated. And the reason is you have to really watch film. You have to watch things that are happening off of the ball. You have to understand mm -hmm. basketball at a high level to appreciate those things. To appreciate Michael Jordan, you don't have to know anything about basketball. I mean, a child can watch Michael Jordan. Yep. He's charismatic. He's engaging. He's spectacular. He dunks. He was truly great. But you don't have to be a basketball expert to understand Jordan's greatness. Pippen was great in a way that you have to have some expertise to really understand. And I could pause for a moment if you had a question or I could then address what Scottie Pippen did on defense because I primarily focused on his contribution on offense, but I could discuss what he did on defense as well. Yeah, I think that would be great. And just to, to highlight everything that you're saying, I agree 100%. One of the things that I often write about and talk about is – trying to see the game behind the game, trying to understand the game at a deeper level. And of course, my experience, having been a coach and having done a deep dive into, into statistical analysis and so forth, that there's what you see, there's what the fan sees. Like you just said, Michael Jordan scoring a lot of points. One of the most graceful, beautiful people to ever walk planet Earth, much less pick up a basketball and play the game of basketball. But someone like Scottie Pippen who's doing a lot of his work off ball, especially when Jordan was on the team, he gets 
um, short shrift a little bit. So yeah, why don't you go ahead and talk about his defense, and then also what I was going to ask about, and people don't bring this up nearly enough, I think, is Pippen's 1994 season, 93-94 season, when the Bulls, of course, were playing without Michael Jordan. So maybe defense and then the 94 season, if if you're comfortable talking about both of those. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll uh, reiterate a point that you made. Uh, and, I, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Charlie Rosen mentions this uh, in, in the book that I talked about, God, Man, and Basketball Jones. I'm sure he's mentioned in other places as well. But the importance, he talked about television, the all-seeing eye of television, and television always focuses on the ball, which, I mean, makes mm-hmm. sense if you're broadcasting mm-hmm. a game with a general audience and your camera's, you know, not focused on the ball, like who's going to watch or understand what's happening. But if you really understand basketball or want to understand it, you have to look at what's happening off the ball. There are 10 players on the court. Only one player has the ball. There are nine other players who are doing things of significance, good or bad, but they're significant, and it's away from the ball. You have to watch and understand what's happening away from the ball on offense and on defense. And so, and then to segue into to Scottie Pippen's role, you know, Scottie Pippen's contributions, I mentioned his contributions on offense, which were significant, his contributions on defense were even more significant and were multifaceted. One, he was what you would call the prototype, quote unquote, lockdown defender. You could put Scottie Pippen mm-hmm. on the other team's best offensive player and he could lock that player down to the extent that that's possible. We all understand great scorers are going to get their numbers almost no matter what. What a lockdown defender is doing is not necessarily holding somebody to zero points, but making them inefficient, making them work, wearing them down. So by the fourth quarter, they're not going to be as effective. Scottie Pippen could do that. But he would, and, and as great as he was at that, he was probably even better as a help defender. Doc Rivers, many people have talked about Scottie Pippen is probably the greatest help defender of all time. Well, why does that matter? What does that mean? What a help defender does is he's disrupting the other team's entire offense. So lockdown defender is focusing on one player and trying to deal with that one player. And Scottie Pippen could and did do that at times. But Pippen could disrupt the other team's entire offense with his length, his basketball IQ, the mobility he had. What he would do is he would kind of shade in one direction, shade in the other. So he's watching his man. And in dealing with his man, but he knows the other team's offense. He knows what they're trying to do. And so he will dart out into the passing lane, duck into the paint to discourage a cutter or a post up. He would do little subtle movements that if you're not watching, you're not even aware of it. If you're watching it, but you don't understand the game, you don't know what just happened. And he's gumming up the entire works of the other team's offense. And that was a critical Mm -hmm. contribution to, to the Chicago Bulls defense and their defense is a major reason that they won championships. And one other thing I'll mention about Scottie Pippen's defense, his ability to harass the primary ball handler, who may or may not have been the primary scorer, but the primary ball handler, Magic Johnson in the 91 finals, John Stockton in, Mal- in a couple NBA finals, Mark Jackson in the 1998 Eastern Conference finals. Scottie Pippen completely took those teams out of their offense. He picked up those ball handlers, full court, shaded them away from what they wanted to do. And then the one other thing I'll mention that's important for understanding NBA basketball, there is a 24-second shot clock. I talked to Hank Egan, a great defensive coach, a number of years ago when I spoke with him, and he said the shot clock is a monster. That shot clock, Mm. if you can 
take a team out of their rhythm, if you can disrupt something even for three or four seconds, that is an eighth or more of the shot clock. You've messed up their whole offense. You've thrown everything out of rhythm. Scottie Pippen is one of the greatest players of all time at using that shot clock, disrupting the other team's rhythm and throwing them off of what they wanted to do. And he had what I thought is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen when he was guarding Mark Jackson in the Eastern Conference Finals. And in that game, Scottie Pippen's box score, if I'm remembering correctly, Scottie Pippen had four points on one of nine shooting. And, and he probably played one of the greatest games I've ever seen because he mm. picked up Mark Jackson full court and completely disrupted the Pacers offense and destroyed them. And in a seven-game series, if you can do that in one game, let alone if you do that in multiple games, you're turning, you're changing the outcome potentially of the entire series. And, you know, the average fan, even people that are doing, you know, advanced basketball statistical analysis, they just don't have a way to quantify or understand or appreciate uh, that kind of impact. Right, right. And, and you said something there, David, that before we get to the 94 season, I, I want to make sure the listeners, um, uh, you know, really understood. Because it's something that I actually haven't thought much about until you just mentioned it, which is you talked about Scottie Pippen's defensive ability on ball with someone like Mark Jackson, where he literally took the other team's best ball handler and, and put that ball handler in a timeout. And you talked about Scottie Pippen's excellence off ball. And those are two completely different skill sets in a way that I don't think people oftentimes realize. The only analogy I can give is rebounding. You know, we lump together offensive rebounds and defensive rebounds, but those are also two totally different skill sets. And very rarely is someone who's in the top 10 in defensive rebounds also in the top 10 in offensive rebounds and vice versa. Dennis Rodman, the greatest rebounder of all time, in my opinion, is the only one that consistently placed in both lists. And I think that's similar to what you're saying about Pippen in terms of being world-class on-ball and world-class off-ball. And of course, as you alluded to, we just don't have the defensive stats that we do for offense that sort of help us realize his impact. Yeah, and then during the 94 season, because I just realized that was probably the third part of your question that maybe I didn't address because I focused on offense and defense in general. But that 94 season, uh, Scottie Pippen really put the full range of his talents on display at both ends of the court. He was in his physical prime. And, uh, you know, when Jordan retired, you know, if, if people forget, let's put some context in this, because I realize now for a lot of the listeners, we were talking about something that's 27 years ago. So a lot of the listeners may not have even been born or may have been very young at that time. Don't remember that season. You know, I remember that season, lived through that season. I was an adult already at that time. So following the NBA very intently, Michael Jordan didn't just retire. He retired shortly before the season began. And, and why does that matter? Mm -hmm. Well, the Bulls didn't have the opportunity going into the draft and say, well, we're going to draft. Not that you can replace Michael Jordan, but the point being, they had no real warning, no idea, well, we're going to try to build a post-Michael Jordan roster. So the Bulls started that season without Michael Jordan. And if people may not remember, they replaced him with Pete Myers. That was the starting shooting mm -hmm. guard that year. Pete Myers was a guy that during the Bulls' first championship run could barely make the team. He's kind of on and off the roster, an 11th or 12th man. And he was the starting 
shooting guard that replaced Michael Jordan. Now, the Bulls did add Tony Kukoc, who later became a fantastic player, but as a rookie, he had issues with stamina, with physical strength. He was a horrible defensive player. Now, he had a lot of game-winning shots that year. He was a creative passer. But when you're taking Michael Jordan out, you haven't had a chance to reformulate your roster, maybe to make it the best possible roster for Pippen being your best player. You've replaced Jordan with Pete Myers, and the only real talent that you've added is Tony Kukoc, who's adjusting to the NBA from Europe. Most people would say, well, this team is going to have a huge drop-off. The Bulls won 57 games in 1992-93. Now, they did win the championship that year, but in the regular season, they won 57 games. And in that season with Scottie Pippen taking over for Jordan and Pete Myers playing shooting guard, the Bulls went 55-27. and B.J. Armstrong and Horace Grant made the all-star team for the first and only times in their careers. And Scottie Pippen really deserved even more MVP consideration than he got. He had some things that happened off the court, different things that happened. Um, His relationship with the media was always tenuous. The media are the people that vote for the MVP. And not to disparage, you know, the other MVP candidates. There were other, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon and David Robinson also had great seasons. But I felt like Scottie Pippen should have won the award that year for his all-around contributions and for doing something that no one would have thought possible prior to that time to essentially fill the role of Michael Jordan. But he did it by playing like Scottie Pippen. He did not fill the Jordan role by averaging 30 or 32 points. Pippen averaged 22 points, which was a career high. But what he did is he became the best version of Scottie Pippen. He ran the triangle. Like I said, he helped BJ and um, Horace Grant become all-stars. He increased his scoring a little bit, but pretty much he just was more of Scottie Pippen. And Mm -hmm. it was just tremendous what he did. And I think we're going to talk about later what happened uh, in the playoffs. But but they had a great opportunity to win a championship. And and he played well in the playoffs. There was a very unfortunate, very questionable, just flat-out wrong call that cost them against the New York Knicks. Uh, But but Pippen's play in that season – very underrated, very underappreciated, even at the time, even as people were watching it, I don't think people appreciated it. And now it's, you know, it's 27 years later and it's probably all but forgotten, which is very unfortunate because it just a tremendous season that he had. And then by the way, the next season, which, you know, Jordan came back near the end of that season, but in that next season, Scottie Pippen led the team in scoring, rebounding assists, steals, and block shots, which only a handful of players in the history of pro basketball have ever done. And a lot of people say, well, you know, that season, you know, it's kind of like a failure or shortcoming. You know, they lost Horace Grant. They had various injuries. They were actually starting to play well. The last 10 games before Jordan came back, they were starting to look the way they had looked the previous season. Then Jordan came back. And, you know, I think most people probably know what happened after that. They, they did well, but they lost in the playoffs. Then they won three straight championships. But Pippen's play, not just in 94, But also in 94-95, he proved he could be a number one player on the team. He proved he was an MVP caliber player. And if anybody ever doubted that, which they shouldn't have, he put together a body of work in that time that that refuted any notions that he couldn't do those things. Right, right, 100%. And that, that second season without Jordan, like you said, Jordan came back at the end of that season. Um. They clearly really missed Horace Grant's defense and his uh, rebounding. Yeah. Rebounding was the huge issue for that um, that team, even after Jordan came back. If you remember in the playoffs, they played Orlando, who had Horace Grant, 
and they put Scotty mm-hmm. Pippen at power forward because Kukoc mm-hmm. could not play power forward. He wasn't strong enough, wasn't tough enough physically, certainly at least at that time. And so in the playoffs, they had Scotty Pippen playing power forward, and they're just kind of mixing and matching lineups. And obviously, you know, that wasn't going to quite work. Then the next year, they got Rodman and had everybody back in the normal position. But that's the other thing with Pippen that's worth mentioning. He played point guard and offense, but defensively, he could guard any position except center. And even sometimes when they played Utah, sometimes he actually, when the Bulls went to small lineups in the NBA Finals, he would technically be guarding Greg Ostertag. He was actually playing center on defense in certain situations for a limited time. But definitely one through four, Scottie Pippen in his prime could guard just about anybody in the NBA. He primarily played one, two, or three. But there were situations where he played four. Now, he didn't like playing four. He, he talked about that some. He said, I'm not a four. He didn't like that. He, obviously, he was smaller than those guys. But he had the, the capability of doing those things. Right, right. And we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. When you're talking about players of yesteryear, you have to do some projection to see how they would fit in in today's game. Um, and some players, a lot of players, a lot of great players, it would be really tough for them in today's game. Uh, someone like Patrick Ewing, I think, would struggle in today's game. And there are other players, and you mentioned um, Pistol Pete before we started recording, who would you know, love to play in today's era. Scottie Pippen is someone who, as you just said, in today's game could easily play the four, play the three, play the two, play the one. And Pippen is someone as great a career as he had, I think he would excel even more in today's era. What do you think about that? Oh, I agree. I mean, today's era is primarily focused on and built around, you know, quick point guards that can handle and shoot. And then those players in that 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", 6'8", type of height or size range. That, that are versatile all-around players that can defend, they can shoot the three, they can handle the ball, you know, like Kawhi Leonard, you know, perhaps as the prototype of that type of player, Kevin Durant, um, LeBron James, obviously, of course, and, and Scottie Pippen, you know, would fit right into that mold. Now, some people would say, well, his defense would be hampered because, you know, the no hand-checking rules. Scottie Pippen could play defense in any era. He played defense mm-hmm. the way the rules permitted at that time. But if you watch him, and this is what I talk about, you have to be able to do skill set analysis. You actually have to watch what the player's doing and then really try to, to scout that or project that out. So when you watch Scottie Pippen play defense, yes, in today's game, he would not be able to put his hands on people. But Scottie Pippen had a seven-foot wingspan. Scottie Pippen was quick. Scottie Pippen could jump. Scottie Pippen had an unparalleled basketball IQ. So to the extent that you're permitted to play defense in this era, he would be you know, at least as good a defensive player as someone like Kawhi Leonard, who's been a defensive player uh, of the year. I, I would mm-hmm. argue, I think Scottie Pippen is quicker afoot than, than Kawhi Leonard and might even be better defensively than Kawhi, but certainly no worse than Kawhi. And Scottie Pippen could do the same things that Kawhi, LeBron, Durant do in terms of the ball handling, of running an offense. Now, Scottie Pippen was not a great three-point shooter. He was an adequate three-point shooter in the era that he played in. And I imagine playing in this era, he would develop into being at least an adequate three-point shooter. Now, you look at Kawhi Leonard. When he came in the league, he was basically a non-shooter. And he developed into now, he's a very good shooter. And, you know, players develop the skill set that's relevant for the era they're in. So, you know, you weren't going to develop a three-point shot in the 1980s or 1990s. 
because that, that was not part of the game for the most part. But great mm-hmm. players, you know, will adapt and will adjust. And so Scottie Pippen would just be a tremendous player in today's game. It, it's very well suited to the way he played, to the skill set that he had, and the facets of his game that, that were not as developed in the 90s would be developed now because they're needed. I'm, I'm thinking specifically the three-point shot, which is really the only facet of his game that you could say was not super developed. He wasn't a great free throw shooter either, but uh, but LeBron James has done pretty well uh, at not being a great free throw shooter. And I would say he's been an, an inconsistent three-point shooter. There's sometimes where LeBron mm-hmm. shoots it tremendously, but he's not a pure shooter or a great shooter per se, but it's something he's developed along the way as that's become, uh, you know, an increasingly important element in the modern game. Right, 100%. And just so the listeners know, uh, I knew that I was going to talk to David. I've been sort of doing a deep dive on Pippen. And so in preparation for this conversation, I did a video breakdown of the greatness of Scottie Pippen. And I took Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Semifinals 1994, so Bulls, Knicks, Bulls obviously without Michael Jordan, and just highlighted four plays from that game that show how great Pippen was offensively and defensively. And of course, that season, he was the engine of the offense, but then also because Jordan wasn't there, had to finish a lot of the plays offensively. And as David has explained, defensively was a terror off the ball and then in the fourth quarter they put him on Greg Anthony and just like with Mark Jackson and other players Pippen was just shutting him down so that video is on the YouTube page and of course you can find everything that I do at at benbow.substack.com David I want to be mindful of your time Um, you've given me way more time than we even talked about uh, beforehand so thank you very much for that I would love to have you come on again Um, I think that One, we just uh, think about basketball in the same way and have a lot of the same touchstones and and similar ideas. So I'd love to have you come on and and have some more discussion. We could do a deep dive into Dr. J. We could do a deep dive into your Pantheon. Uh, And of course, I'll link to your work um, in the show notes. Uh, Any final thoughts before we wrap up here? I'd love to be on again. I know there's some topics that we talked about possibly discussing today um, that we didn't have time to get to. So I'd I'd be happy to come on again and and discuss those subjects. I I love, you know, the analytical aspect of basketball and and watching the game. I mean, it's fine for people that watch it just as a diversion or as entertainment or because they're fans of a particular player or particular team. Uh, And I do that sometimes as well, but I've, I've always, tried to watch basketball from an analytical standpoint and tried to understand why, why is this working? Why is this not mm. working? What's happening? What's making mm-hmm. a player great or not great? What makes a team great or not great? So those kinds of conversations and discussions are, are always interesting to me. Uh, and I, I do that with other sports as well, but particularly with basketball, just to try to understand what, what is actually happening, what, what's going mm-hmm. on, like we talked about, away from the ball, um, you know, Hubie Brown, you know, when, he still does games now, but when he was in his prime and he was the, the primary analyst on, on various networks talking about basketball, he always did a tremendous job of really breaking those things down and explaining them. And if you look back at the old clips, whenever he was doing a game where Scottie Pippen was playing, uh, he would break down and explain the kind of things 
kinds of things that we discussed today and the contributions Pippin was making and the impact that he was having. And um, that, that kind of insight sometimes is all too rare, but it, it's very important to, to listen to those kinds of things, to read those kinds of things and try to train oneself, if one's interested in this, to train oneself to watch basketball mm -hmm. in a way where you're really trying to understand what's happening kind of underneath the surface, or I don't want to say behind the scenes, but but away from the ball, for sure. Yes, yes. That, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do as well. Uh, I love that we both think about that the same way, of you know separating highlights and jaw-dropping athletic plays and dunks and blocks and really understanding what what wins and loses basketball games and that reminds me there was something you said right at the top that i made a note of that, that i want to come back to because this is something that you're talking about and that i'm talking about something that goes unnoticed something for which there's no statistic but which contributes greatly to winning and losing basketball and that is you mentioned that Dr. J almost never missed an in-game dunk because Dr. J knew when he could make that shot and when he couldn't. And that skill, the skill of a player understanding this shot is a good shot for me to take versus this shot is not a good shot for me to take. Shot selection is an incredibly important skill. Um, there's a quote that I put up by the former general manager of the 76ers, Sam Hinkie, um, in the newsletter last week where he was talking about probabilities. And he said, um, it doesn't even matter to me if the shot goes in or not. It's just, was that a good shot for us to take? And when I was coaching, that's how I would break down shots. Not, hey, you did a great job. You shot um, four of six today. But rather, uh, you took three shots that were good shots and you took three shots that were not good shots. And so just understanding how important efficiency in shot selection is. Um, I, I just wanted to touch on that because you mentioned that right at the top. Yeah, it, it's very important to have that understanding as a player and as a team. What, what is a good shot for me? Time, score, situation, skill set. What is a good shot for the team? And then also when you're on defense, you have to have that understanding about the other team. What are they trying to do? What can their mm -hmm. players do? Hubie Brown, you know, would, would always talk about, you know, why, why is this guy running out at this guy at the three-point line who's not a three-point shooter and letting him drive? There's certain players, you know, you want them to shoot that shot. You, you, you mm -hmm. contest it, you close out, but you close out under control so they can't drive. So they're going to shoot that shot that's a low percentage shot for them. You put a hand up, you don't foul. And you don't give them the drive, which is the shot they really want, which is a better shot for them and for their team. And that understanding of things, you know, it, it, it's rare. It's, it's rare for commentators, mm -hmm. unfortunately. It's rare mm -hmm. sometimes for players and for teams. And that's why sometimes I, I get irritated when people will, will focus on shooting percentages or how many shots a player took. And I say, that's only part of the story. You have to, if you really want to understand if that player had a good game or a bad game, or if that player is an effective player, an ineffective offensive player, you can't just look at how many shots they took or what their percentage was. You have to look at the role on the team. You have to look at the situation. You have to really take everything into account. Now, it's not easy. That's why most people don't do that. But if you're really trying to understand what's going on, you have to go beyond the numbers. The numbers are a starting point, and the numbers 
give you some insight and some idea of what to look at. I mean, if somebody has a really high shooting percentage or really low shooting percentage, I mean, you obviously have to pay attention to that and kind of figure out why is this guy shooting 60%? Why is this guy shooting 40%? I mean, you don't ignore it. But, you know, sometimes I would just laugh at, at, at stuff. You know, I'd read these things. Um, you know, someone was trying to write years ago, like Andrew Bynum, you know, should be the number one option for the Lakers because he's a more efficient player than Kobe Bryant. Because Kobe Bryant shooting 45% and Andrew Bynum shooting 60% or whatever Bynum was shooting. And it's like, but are you watching the games? Andrew Bynum is shooting 60% because Kobe Bryant is being double teamed. He is passing the ball to Andrew Bynum, who is open under the basket, who is dunking or making one move in dunking. And that's why he's shooting 60%. If he's not playing with Kobe Bryant, does he have a skill set to post up on his own? Can he score against the double team? Can he create his shot? If you really followed Andrew Bynum's career before he got hurt, you realize uh, not so much. And so, right. and why is why is Kobe Bryant shooting forty five percent? Isn't that a terrible percentage? Well, if the offense is breaking down and the shot clock, the monster is about to go off, somebody has to shoot the ball. It's better to have a shot go up than than no shot at all. And a lot of times he would shoot what I call hand grenade shots. Things had broken down. Not always his fault, by the way. Things broke down. Somebody has to shoot that shot, and that's going to affect your percentage. And so. All of those kinds of things have to be taken into account. And so people would talk about, oh, you know, this guy's shooting 60% and this guy's shooting 45 Yeah, I mean, that matters. But you also, when you're comparing player shooting percentages, you also have to compare players that are in the same kind of role, taking the same kind of shots for the same kind of reason. And you have to understand, right. is the player creating his own shot? Is, is the defense focused entirely on him? Or is he the beneficiary of somebody getting all of that extra coverage? And one, one other thing I'll mention about that, go back, anyone that's interested, look at Pau Gasol's career and look at his field goal percentage and look at his offensive rebounds. Field goal percentage and offensive rebounds tend to be stats that a player is better at when they're younger and they're more athletic. It's very rare for those stats to increase or improve the later that you get in your career, just in general. Now you look at Pau Gasol, look at his offensive rebounding and his field goal percentage after he joined the Lakers and started playing with Kobe Bryant. Those numbers went up, and he was an established player that had been in the league for many years. Why did those numbers go up? It was actually something I predicted after the trade happened and before he started playing. And I said, his numbers are going to go up because he's going to go from being the number one option in Memphis with the defense focused on him and attention on him. Now he's going to have a lot of single coverage. The defense is going to focus on Kobe. He's going to have higher percentage shots. He won't have to work as hard to get his shots. And when Kobe drives and the whole defense collapses on Kobe, when Kobe still ends up shooting that or passes and somebody else shoots, Pau Gasol is going to have a runway to the hoop to get offensive rebounds. Mm -hmm. And these mm -hmm. are the kinds of things, it's, it's a multi-part analysis to understand. It. You don't just look at offensive rebounds or field goal percentage. You look at it and then, well, why, is, why are these numbers going up or down? What's happening with that? And then when you do that, then you really start to understand what's happening during the game, why certain things are, are taking place and what the numbers mean. And so I'm, I, I love statistics, but I love the intelligent application of statistics. And sometimes in right. my writing, I'm critical of statistical analysis because I don't feel it's always done in an intelligent way. And it, it's important to do things intelligently and analytically and not just you know, be, be driven by certain narratives. And I think sometimes 
people have statistical systems they've developed and under their system so-and-so is the best player so to justify their system they have to come up with a narrative that kind of supports right supports that right right exactly and, and i think you know where that kind of leads me one of the things that um you're maybe alluding to or, or something that i've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about is what are the incentives so I remember um, Stefan Marbury at, at one of his later stops was being criticized for his shot selection. And, and he's somebody, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I bet he shot in the low 40s career, um, similar to Allen Iverson. And Marbury's response was, hey, I got maxed, meaning he got a max contract. So whether or not his shot selection was contributing to his team's success, and it almost certainly wasn't, um, not in the same way that you're talking about potentially with Kobe Bryant and Pau Gasol and Andrew Bynum. Um, it didn't matter because he scored a lot of points and scoring a lot of points gets you maxed. Stephon Mar Marbury got a max contract. Shane Battier never sniffed a max contract. So there's also what, what I think what fans don't understand is there are competing incentives beyond just, hey, let's win the game for, for my mates. Marbury was an extraordinarily gifted player athletically and physically who never came close to maximizing his potential to be a great basketball player. He's a great example of the difference between being a talented player, which he indisputably was, physically strong, could jump quick, could shoot, could drive, could all these attributes that he had, tremendous talent. He was not a great player. And I would also argue um, a lot of times, I think when people look at Zion Williamson right now, Zion Williamson is a tremendous talent. He is not a great player right now. Now, he may become mm -hmm. one, and I don't want to be hard. He may become an all-time great. But right now, he is not a great player. He is a great talent. He doesn't completely understand how to play. He's not good defensively. His team is horrific defensively. He is a subpar rebounder for his size and athleticism. The one skill set that he's developed at the NBA level, and he's developed it to a very high level, he can score in, while shooting a very high percentage. He scores a lot of mm -hmm. points and he shoots a high percentage. But as I alluded to earlier, that, that, is, not, that is not the be-all and the end-all. And there are a lot of other areas where he's subpar. And I think people just look at him and look at his dunks and his charisma. They look at the field goal percentage and the points per game. And, and there's this notion out there that he is a great player. He is not a great player right now. Now, he's a young player. I, I have hope for him. Like, I have hope for every player that comes in the NBA. I hope he becomes a great player. He's not a great player right now. He is a great talent. And there is a difference and a distinction with that. And Stefan Marbury was a great talent who never became a great player. I always mm -hmm. referred to him. He was the anti-Jason Kidd. Jason mm -hmm. Kidd, mm -hmm. everywhere he went, the team got better. Every mm -hmm. team he left got worse. I mean, literally, it's not even an exaggeration. I was just writing about this the other day when I was doing like a revised top 50 list of all time. Without exception, everywhere he went got better. Everywhere he left got worse. His impact on Team USA, that could be a whole other chapter, other story, where Team USA had some supremely talented right. teams that did not win gold medals when he didn't play. Stefan Marbury, almost everywhere he went, and the team would tend to get worse. I don't have the mm -hmm. stats in front of me that that's necessarily true every single time, but the general pattern was when he went somewhere, they got worse. And when he left, they got better. 
he would go and, and there was this stat that was always stated about him during his career at one time. I forget how many seasons it was, but he had had X number of seasons where he averaged 20 points per game and eight assists per game. And he had more of those, I think, than anybody other than Oscar Robertson, or he did it at that time. And it was the mm. most meaningless statistic ever. <laughs> right. Oscar Robertson was a winning ball player, and he won a championship in Milwaukee, and he was a winning ball player his whole career. And everything Oscar was doing was to promote the, maximizing his team's opportunity to win. And Stefan Marbury w- was, you know, like what Kenny Smith sometimes calls, like a looter in a riot, a guy that's putting up numbers <laughs> that have no connection with winning the game. And, mm-hmm. and if you really break down Stefan Marbury and watch, yeah, he could score whatever he wanted. Like you say, the shot selection was questionable. Yeah, he could get 20 points, you know, win or lose, often lose. And with his assists, his numbers, he's not a great passer in terms of winning. He accumulated assists. And what I mean by that is he would only pass the ball if he was passing to someone that he was sure was going to take the shot and score. Now, if you think about that at first, you say, well, that's great. You're passing to get a score. No, that's not how an offense works. For an offense to be effective, sometimes you have to make the pass that leads to the pass to the score. It's a five-man right. game. This, is, exactly. this is not about we're trying to maximize Stephon Marbury's assist totals. His assist totals, there are plenty of players who averaged in their career four or five assists a game, not seven or eight or whatever Marbury ended up on by the end of his career, that were far better passers than Marbury, were far better team players. And this Including Scottie Pippen. Yeah, Scottie Pippen, for sure, is an example of that. I'm sure his, his career assist average, Marbury's might have dropped at the end when he was bouncing around, but it, Pippen's career average would be lower than Marbury. Far superior playmaker, far better running in offense. And this is the thing, assists become a shorthand for playmaking. And there, there's so many reasons that that is not the case. Mar, Marbury's like example A for that, but there are other examples and, and things that we could dive into with that. But, but assists, it gives you some idea, but again, there's no substitute for watching the games with understanding. It's a phrase I used mm-hmm. a lot, particularly in the early days of my website, um, when I would have these different debates or conversations with people, whether whether they were statistically oriented or whatever, whatever perspective they were coming from, and they might do a player evaluation differently than I did. And I said, you have to watch the game with understanding. You have it's not just saying, well, Andrew Bynum scored 20 points and he shot 10 for 14 and Kobe Bryant scored 27, but he shot 13 for 27. So Bynum had a better, more efficient game and Bynum's a better player and Bynum should be the first option. I mean, those are the kind of conversations mm-hmm. I was having with people, you know, 2006, 2007, you know, conversations back and forth in my website and other places. And, and I would just say you have to watch the game with understanding. You have to actually understand what's going on. And we have to be speaking kind of the same language of that. Like when we're watching a play where Kobe Bryant draws a double team and passes to Bynum and Bynum dunks, we have to understand that and process that in the same way. If you're watching that and processing that to mean, well, Bynum should be getting the ball every play. If that is what you learn from watching that play, then we probably can't have a conversation of really evaluating what's happening because you're just right. you're, you're looking at it in a different way. And in my estimation, I, w- I was more blunt probably in my earlier years of writing, but I would just say to people, you, you don't understand what you're watching. Now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little older. I would maybe try to couch it in a different way, but it would be the same essential message. <laughs> the truth being right. a lot of people just aren't understanding what they're watching. And, and 
you know, this, you know, people will, you know, these player ranking systems and sometimes, you know, Tyson Chandler, will, he's shooting 60% and you get these ludicrous conversations like Tyson Chandler, like the, whatever team was playing for at that particular time, because he played for several teams and he's a very good player. And he, and he contributed, you know, to, to Dallas's t- championship team, but people, oh, he should be shooting the ball more often. He should be getting more touches. And I'm thinking he's shooting 60% because he's shooting the ball eight to 10 times a game. And, and every time he shoots, it's an offensive rebound dunk or it's a lob. He has no post-up game. He, he doesn't, you know, have the ability to create his own offense. If you designed an offense for him to shoot the ball 20 times a game, one, you're insane. And two, he's not going to be shooting 60% because you can't mm-hmm. generate 20 shots of the type that he was shooting 60% on. Now, Bynum was a much more skilled offensive player than Chandler, but it's the same principle. You can't design an offense for Bynum where he's going to shoot the percentage he was shooting on a higher volume than he was shooting. He was shooting the percentage he was shooting because he was playing with Kobe. And then there were games sometimes that Kobe was out, he got suspended, um, different things happened, and then you would see, okay, what does Bynum look like? And, and shockingly, I'm being sarcastic, you know, in those games where Kobe didn't play because, you know, he was resting his knee. I think one one game he got a flagrant foul and was suspended, whatever. There were games he didn't play and Bynum played. Shockingly, Bynum wasn't shooting 60%. <laughs> right. You know, and these right. are the kinds of things, like, I've been predicting, but it's like, you know, until you actually get to see it happen, people don't believe it or understand it. And if not granted, the games right. Kobe missed, it was, you could say, well, it's a small sample size. But it would come out exactly the way I'd been predicting and writing about. I always said, I said, I, you know, I don't want Kobe Bryant to have to miss a game. But I said, if it ever happens, you know, then we'll see. Then, then we'll understand, yeah. you know, what, what's going on with these things. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not just understanding the numbers. It's understanding yeah. how the pieces fit together. And sometimes people think that I, you know, certain things that I've written, like that I'm against analytics or I'm against. No, I, I love statistics. I love numbers. But it's got to be the intelligent use of that, the mm-hmm. intelligent application of it. And that, those mm-hmm. are the things that I question sometimes, um, what, how the numbers are being used and what interpretations uh, are, are being derived from them. And then there's th- that is part of the picture. The numbers are part of the picture, but there has to be context. And you, you actually have to watch players. The thing that irritates me sometimes about some of the, the people with the, the statistics when they will say, I don't need to watch a game. Watching the game, actually, the eye is biased, and I can evaluate players just by using numbers. And mm-hmm. that that is as wrong-headed as someone on the opposite end that says, I only go by the eye test. You can throw these numbers in the trash. I don't want to look at numbers. I go by the eye test. They're both wrong. Right. Right. You have right. to do both. You have the to work. watch the games, and then you've got to look at the numbers because the numbers are telling you a story, but you have to understand what story they're telling and what it means and what to derive from it. And, and the teams that combine those approaches, you know, that that's where, where there's going to be success. And if you're leaning too much one way or the other, you're going to have deficiencies and those deficiencies, you know, will get exposed at some point. David, this has just been a, a real treat. And for me, this conversation has just opened up a hundred more tributaries that, that we can, um, go down. So I would love to have you back uh, and, and just talk basketball and, and talk some more um, about everything that we've touched on and, and a bunch of things that we haven't touched on. But thank you very much You're for welcome. taking time out of your day to, to visit with us and help all of us 
understand um, basketball at a little bit deeper level. Uh, if you could just remind the listeners again where they can find you. Yeah, I, I have two websites. The, the basketball website is 22ndtimeout.blogspot.com, and the, the 20, the number, is spelled out 2-0. And the idea, of course, is to give the reader the, the understanding. It's a website primarily focused on the NBA because only the NBA has 20-second timeouts. You don't have that at any other level of basketball. I write occasionally about other levels, but primarily I focus on the NBA. And the other website that I have where I write about uh, any sport other than basketball, I don't write about basketball at that website. It, it's called In the Arena, but the blog spot uh, name is besteversportstalk.blogspot.com. But I actually renamed the website. I actually call it In the Arena uh, Ruminations About Sport. Um, I primarily have written about chess, NFL football, and tennis at that um, website, but sometimes I've written about auto racing, a little bit Major League Baseball. It's kind of a, a potpourri, and I take the same approach there that I take with basketball, where I'm interested in understanding what makes individuals and or teams successful and in, in diving into sports from that kind of, a, of an analytical perspective. And when I say analytical, it doesn't just mean statistics, but it means, again, watching with understanding, trying to really figure out why individuals or teams are successful or not. Anyone that's interested in chess, I'm a tournament chess player. I write a lot about chess. Chess is classified as a sport. I know some people might not always agree with that, but um, if you're interested in chess, I have a lot of commentary and a lot of analysis about chess uh, on my In the Arena website, including a recent uh, book review of the biography that just came out about Bobby Fischer by John Donaldson, which is a book I would highly recommend to anyone who's interested in chess or just interested in geniuses or even interested in mental illness, because that book kind of touches on all of those subjects and all of those issues. Fantastic. And again, we'll have links to David's work in the show notes, as well as the 10 authors that he mentioned, the 10 sports writers that, that are certainly must read authors. So once again, David, thank you very much. Everybody out there, you can find my work at benbow.substack.com. That's benbow.substack.com. <laughs>